Suffering Sit Your Boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat back down with Alex Fetsky to talk about the latest edition. Let me get my finger over here. Of the Bitcoin Times, the Austrian edition. As well as a bunch of other stuff. We started this conversation off uh, on a topic I didn't expect to go down, but very happy we did. I think you guys are going to like it. I'm going to hold off on reading the latest boostograms from the most recent episode because we just dropped it an hour ago. So it's still percolating the interwebs. Um, we'll give it some time before reading the top four boost of that rip with Victor from IVPN. Very good rip if you haven't listened to it. Oh, and Wave Lake. This is going to come after Wave Lake. So Wave Lake hasn't even been dropped yet. Victor just dropped. So I'll read the top four boosts from those episodes on next week's rip. Hope you guys enjoy this one. It was brought to you by our good friends at River. River is here to build an exchange for Bitcoiners, by Bitcoiners. They do it the right way. They don't trust any third parties like Prime Trust. They build their own infrastructure. They build their own wallets. They are their own exchange. They're not, again, leveraging third parties to get their Bitcoin. They have their own systems in place to get it. If you hold Bitcoin on River, you can be sure that it's 100% backed with reserves. It is held in multi-sig cold storage. It's very secure. With that being said, they don't want you to hold your Bitcoin on their exchange. They advocate that you take control of your own private keys in custody of your own Bitcoin. They have literature on their site that's going to help you get comfortable with that uh, if you're not already. Uh, they also have mining services. They have hosted mining. If you want to mine via River, you can do that as well. And then they have River Lightning Services, which is an API that will allow you to build Lightning Network apps uh, from scratch if you want to, while well, leveraging their API. Um, so if you're an engineer and you're looking to build a Lightning Network app, you can use River's Lightning Services. Uh, if you're using the exchange, if you dollar cost average using River, you're not going to pay any fees. You may have your Bitcoin exchange. Uh, if you're in Texas, you may not be able to rely on that exchange come tomorrow, January 31st. If you're listening to this, that day is coming past. Um, some third parties have, have uh, shit the bed and, and a lot of people in Texas aren't going to be allowed to buy Bitcoin because of some licensing stuff. River doesn't have that problem. They can serve Texas customers. They build it out. You may have your Bitcoin exchange. Uh, but have you tried River yet? Go try it. Go to T or excuse me, go to river.com slash TFTC and try it out. This trip is also brought to you by good friends at Unchained Capital. They're located here in Austin, Texas. They don't have this problem either. They're very similar to River and where they build out their own infrastructure, their old walled infrastructure as well. And that is what we're here to talk about today is their vault. It's a two or three multi-sig wallet, which allows you to hold two keys while Unchained holds one. It's collaborative custody. So if you're out there, you're an individual with a lot of Bitcoin, your business that has Bitcoin, your treasury, your family office that wants to hold Bitcoin, uh, but you want to eliminate the single point of failure, which is yourself, and you want to do custody in a collaborative way, Unchained's vault is the product for you. Uh, if you go to unchained.com slash concierge, set up an appointment with their concierge onboarding team. They'll get you comfortable with multi-sig. They'll get you comfortable with the vault. They'll, they'll send you hardware wallets, that, and then they'll help you set them up and back them up uh, and geographically disperse uh, the hardware and the backups so that you don't have any single points of failure there. Uh, and then you'll set up the wallet, two or three multi-sig, as long as you have your two keys. You can always move your Bitcoin as you see fit. If you're ever in a pinch, only have one key, you need Unchained to be the second into it in the two or three multi-sig quorum, they're there for you. 
on top of this product, they've built an IRA product. They have a lending desk. They have a trading desk as well. So you can move your Bitcoin into an IRA that you control with your keys. Uh, you can use your Bitcoin as collateral to get US dollar loans, same day loans. Um, and you will have a key in that two or three multi-sig quorums that you know that your Bitcoin's not being rehypothecated. And then the trading desk, you buy Bitcoin. It doesn't sit on unchanged. You buy it and they send it straight to your cold storage, your two or three multi-sig vault. Go to unchained.com slash concierge. Use the code TFTC at sign up for $50 off that onboarding service. And enjoy this rip with Alex Fetsky. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. I think you're fine without it. If you want to pump the Bitcoin times, so you can wear it. Yeah, I'll pump it at some point. I'll put the hat on. Let's go. Rock and roll. Oh, right, you got the hat there. We're live. If you want to put it on, it's there to put on at some point. But Yeah, deal. <laughs> yeah, the nomad life, it's, uh, it's a big con. It is. It is. We've been we've been sold this idea that one should uproot and go and travel around. Which, like like I said, it's probably good for a young person to go and you know experience different cultures and see different things and kind of you know expand their mental horizons. But you know, I've, I've sort of been in product development and running businesses all my life, and there's this concept called the double D um, or double diamond. I shouldn't say double D, the double diamond and what what you do is you sort of it's kind of like similar to how they describe uh creativity right you go outwards you open up you see a lot uh you, you take in a lot of data and you 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 kind of like go broad and wide and then you narrow down and you cull everything and sort of you know in a product development uh kind of role you, you do that twice so hence the double diamond effect and i think that's important for some at some point but i think you reach a, a level of maturity where you've kind of seen most of the things you know and principles uh, often uh consistent and static no matter where you are and what you do and you sort of get to a point where you're like all right well it's time to like be more close-minded than be more open-minded and, and you kind of flip the switch. I think I'm there. No, this is funny that you bring this up because Friday night, my wife and I went to dinner with another couple, both mm -hmm. transplants in Austin with big families back in our hometowns. We had a very similar conversation, not in the context of product development, but just being close to family. And for mm -hmm. me, my, myself, I moved from Philadelphia where I'm from right after high school. I've been gone ever since about 14 years now, which is hard to hard to imagine. But no, that was mm -hmm. the tenor of that conversation. It was like, yeah, I've seen the world. I've lived in Chicago, lived in New York, lived in Austin now. And uh, the draw of the extended family back in the Philadelphia area is pretty strong. It's like, hey, I've gone mm -hmm. and somewhat seen the world. And maybe at some point in the next 
couple years, it makes sense just to go home and go back to where my roots are. You actually, that reminds me of a, I was, wife and I were having a discussion on the weekend talking about friends and friendships. And I've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, I think over the, over the last couple of years with, with COVID and all the, all the hysteria and Twitter and all this sort of shit, I think people, people confused acquaintances with similar values with friends. And I think we saw a lot of that in sort of the Bitcoin community, um, you know, with people thinking that they were friends um, and thinking that they were, you know, super alike and all this sort of shit just because they didn't want to get a jab or, um, or, you know, were pro-Trump, for example. Um, but then sort of when you dug under the surface, like what was missing, and, and this is sort of like the thinking I've been having, I'm curious on your thoughts on this, but I feel like friendship requires three things, common values for sure. Uh, more, more importantly than uh, like-mindedness, like like-valuedness I think is extremely important, but two things that I think are missing, and this is probably a function of just modern civilization and even even libertarianism and all this sort of shit is to blame for this, is like we've moved into this individualist world where, um, you know, to, to sort of tie the friendship knot is like uh, common values, time, and shared experience. And I think those two middle ones, like the time and the shared experience is something that um, at, at least I know I lost a lot of because I moved a lot when I was young. Um, I left my hometown. I went out like to the big bad world and university and business entrepreneurship and all this sort of stuff. And like, I really don't know anyone from when I was young anymore, honestly. Um, and, and I think that's something that I've slowly been coming to terms with in the sense that you know, you, you think you, you know, you meet some people, you know, like you share some common values, but, you know, what's missing is that real time and shared experience. I'm, I'm curious to sort of hear your thoughts on that. No, I completely agree. And I think bringing the concept of Dunbar's number, each individual mm-hmm. only has a certain capacity to develop these types of strong relationships with others. And like you said, time and shared experience is definitely a big part of deciding who falls into your Dumbbear, Dumbbar web of trust. And I mean, I didn't have too dissimilar of an upbringing, but I, I did have good roots in Philadelphia and mm-hmm. middle school and high school. Developed really strong friendships with people that I'm still friends with to this day. And when I go home, mm-hmm. go hang out with them, it's like nothing skipped a beat. And Mm-hmm, it goes mm-hmm. back to shared experience in, in middle school and high school. And yeah, it's, I think there is definitely something there. And I, I agree with like the Bitcoin thing. Like I, I love Bitcoiners definitely do think many of us have the same shared values, but again, going back to the, the special ingredients of shared time and experience going through ups and downs with each other. Uh, this may sound weird, but like I have, when you when you want to define people as actual friends, I probably have mm-hmm. less than a dozen actual friends in the Bitcoin space. Totally, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, it's yeah. a, it's 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 something I think, like I said, you know, it's I've been thinking through this 
concept and it, there's a big difference between friends and acquaintances. And I know I've been on a real like rabbit hole, like reading a lot about ancient history and particularly uh, warrior cultures. And the two, the two that I've really gone, or probably three that I've gone down the rabbit hole quite deeply on is like samurai culture, uh, the, the Spartans, the, um, before the Thebans, you know, fucked them over um, and beat their asses. But and then the um, and the sort of the silver shields and the royal guard and Alexander the Great, like and how like those friendships were so different. Like they grew up as young boys together. They you know went through rites of passage, which are completely missing in the modern world. Like they would go through ordeals, like uh, you know the, the famous Spartan agogi, right, where they'd take the child at the age of seven from the mother and then he was had to sleep outside uh, with the shelter that he made and fend for himself and all that sort of stuff until he became an adult. Uh, and, and that was kind of like the longest rite of passage in the ancient world. But these friends would, would fucking die for each other. Like, you know, Alexander's Royal guard, his band of brothers, his, his generals, like they would, tried to outcompete each other as to who would take the first sword or fucking bone, like arrow for their friend, for the, for the man to their right. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, contrasting that to, to the modern world. Like, um, you know, I, I, I know me for one, maybe when I was younger, I had some friends like that, but shit, man, you know, my life took me in such different directions. And I think I fell for the whole, um, the individualist trap. And, and you kind of like, you, you believe this lone wolf garbage, right? And, um, and you realize in the end, that that's crap. Yeah. And I mean, I think just people misconstrue or misinterpret the individualist mindset, which is, yes, you should be an individualist, try to make yourself the best person that you can be, protect yourself, your family, your friend group first, but that doesn't, like you mentioned, it doesn't mean you have to be a lone wolf. It means you mm-hmm, better yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think what people need to bring into the conversation of individualism is you better yourself. Why it's to better the group that you're surrounded by to make like, your, tribe. your tribe as strong as possible. I mean, that's Bitcoin or shit on sports ball quite a bit, but I will say that, um, growing up and playing a sport very competitively developing i mean mm-hmm. it's not like we were in the military but warrior like bonds with people that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you played a sport with for for many years is something i think it was very beneficial to my life and still exists to this day um mm-hmm. those bonds that were formed and when i was a teenager um but yeah i think the individual sort of meme is a bit misconstrued in that you have to tie in that end goal of you're only as strong as the weakest link and you want to make your sh- mm-hmm. yourself as strong as an individual as possible because you don't want to be the weakest link in your your web of trust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, the concept of honor, right? So I... I I will mention it here, um, but we can talk about it on a, on a future podcast. So I'm, I'm writing a book right now called The Bushido of Bitcoin, and I think it's going to be my most important work. But basically, this whole the whole premise of the book is that assuming well, – let me rephrase this. 
it's not another Bitcoin book about the history of fucking money and why Bitcoin's better and why it's going to win and all that sort of stuff. I think that's been done and there's you know much better writers that have sort of handled that. You know, my, The question I'm trying to answer is that if we assume that Bitcoin's going to win, that comes with the reality that Bitcoiners, especially the early ones of this sort of first epoch, the first 20 years, we are going to be disproportionately economically powerful and therefore disproportionately socially powerful. It's a very fucking different world. And what, what are the values and the virtues that we want to embody as individuals in that environment? Do we want to be fucking dickhead Lambo jerk off with, you know, Louis Vuitton sort of onesie, um, you know, jumpsuit, or, you know, do we want to embody like what I, do, do we want to embody the virtues that, emerge from the most difficult sort of uh, environment and you know the ones that I seem to have found that have parallels like you look at the samurai Bushido code is like eight essential uh, virtues of like you know, courage honor respect duty loyalty uh, benevolence or compassion um, sincerity like there's this sort of code of ethics that was was why, let me, how, how do I say this? That code of ethics determined whether someone was a samurai, not just the fact that they had a fucking sword, right? And it was very similar in the West with chivalry. Like you were, you were a knight because of what you embodied, not because of you wore the suit and had a horse, right? Um, and this is sort of my question. This book is like, who do we want to become and how do we want to behave? And I take all this sort of uh, historical anecdotes and kind of like weave it into a book but anyway like it's a uh, i've been doing a lot of thinking on this and, and one of the uh ideas in there is like we need to once again build strong tribes and in particular like you know all the co-ed shit that has happened in the last 50 years like i wonder if that was like one of the major psyops right like literally like disentangled like boys from being able to create boys groups and girls from being able to create girls groups and all this sort of stuff. Like, I think there's something there and, you know, men need to come back and like rebuild these fucking bonds and these groups, um, you know, like to use the German term manner bond, right? Like it's the, it's the, uh, the, the group of valiant men together. So anyway, it's, it's total tangent to what we're supposed to be talking about today, but it's something that I've been doing a lot of thinking about recently. No, I like it. And to your last point, I mean, I think, I think I'm an example that like, I went to one, like where I built those strong bonds, uh, playing sports ball, lacrosse particularly was at, I went to, mm -hmm. a, I went to an all boys high school, prep school. And, um, I think that was a massive benefit for my life. You can get in like, <laughs> I mean, this may come off wrong, but like, I don't think boys and girls are meant to, particularly in that point of life, like it's a bit of a distraction to put them together and totally. expect them yeah, to grow. Okay. Cause I remember yeah. how horny I was in eighth grade when I was at public school, in the co-ed public school. And it was just literally distracting. Just <laughs> looking at asses all day and you go to an all, all boys school and it's just, there's no, I mean, there are distractions, but there, there isn't that weird pubescent distraction where you're, Totally. Yeah. When, when you're a kid, you've got zero dick control and zero any of that control. And you're just like fucking like a little puppy, you know, running around whatever the next shiny thing is. And there's actually, there was a dude that I was talking to who, um, 
he's, he's outside of the Bitcoin space is more sort of like in the, you know, it's kind of built a brand in the, in the masculine space, but from a very different angle. So he built a, a payments company, um, you know, CEO, quite successful. It's kind of like sort of our age, I think, like late 30s, uh, maybe early 40s or something. And he, you know, before like homeschooling and all of that sort of stuff was cool, like uh, he and his wife, like unexpectedly, you know, had a baby at like when he was in his early 20s. Um, like they weren't planning on it and, you know, she fell pregnant and they're like, fuck, what's the best thing for us to do as a family? And, you know, they both agreed that he would go and bust his ass fucking work and she would take care of the family and grow the family. So they had this sort of like good symbiosis from a, from a general gender roles perspective. And, um, and what's interesting, you know, in that conversation was he talked about how the reason they chose to homeschool their kids and what he said, he said that kids being around other kids, you know, we've sort of been taught that that's a good thing because, you know, they need to grow up with their peers and shit. But he said like, you know, when they go to school, kids are not learning from the teachers. They're not learning from the school. They're learning from the other kids around them. And the level of intellect of the kids around them is dumb as fuck because they're kids. They don't know any better. They're not learning from the teachers. Um, so they're not actually maturing as individuals. They're remaining kids all the way through the 12 years that they're in school. Uh, and you come out and you wonder why you're not ready for the world. Whereas, you know, he talked about how, even, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago before sort of schooling started happening as a mainstream thing. It's like the kids grew up influenced by their parents. That's why you had fucking people like, you know, whatever people think about Rockefeller now, but the guy had nothing. And by the time he was 21, he was a multimillionaire. You know, he'd figured out businesses and all this sort of shit. Like that kind of maturity existed back then because kids didn't actually go to school uh, and didn't weren't um, sort of, forced to learn amongst, you know, peers who were stupid, basically, um, which is essentially what we all are as kids. Yeah. No, I've actually talked to Justin Boone a lot about this. I mean, obviously the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, those big family names, uh, mm -hmm. or many could argue very effectively that they're perturbing the world because they've amassed too much power and are using their money mm -hmm. influ and influence to put forth this Malthusian view of the future. But if you dig into like the history of those families, um, they were very focused on, on engendering a culture of, Hey, uh, we have a family business here. I'd like you to join it, but you have to earn your way in and mm -hmm, sort mm -hmm. of basing a, a structure and a lifelong education about growing to become part of the firm. Um, mm -hmm. it's really fascinating. I mean, well, it's like an emphasis on maturity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like instead of an emphasis on, uh, remaining a kid all the way through to your fucking twenties. Yeah. And one thing I did want to mention too, like going back to Dunbar's number and yes, many Bitcoiners have uh, a lot of shared values and we align a lot philosophically, but when it comes down to it, who are your actual friends who have you spent a lot of time with and gone through some trials and tribulations with? Yes, that mm -hmm. number may be small. It doesn't mean that you don't want to be friends with every Bitcoiner. It's just you don't have literally the, the mental capacity to juggle all those connections. So you have to choose and maybe you don't even choose. Maybe just the outcome of your life and your experiences, what you decide to do in this space. Yeah, where it takes you. 
who yeah. your actual friends are. Um, yeah, totally. I, I think um, that's a it's a it's a very valid point. Like it, you know, maybe this is a good segue into um, you know what we originally wanted to talk about, but like this this concept of quality over quantity, right? And I and I think this is another one of those contrarian viewpoints in a world where like I was listening to an AI. Um, a podcast about AI shit the other day and, you know, and, and they sort of keep talking about like how everything's going to be abundant and, you know, we're breaking down barriers and all this sort of shit. And you just hear that so much from the, from the nerds basically. Right. And like the, the push, the effort, the intent is all about, um, complete, like abandoned, like mindless abandon with respect to abundance. Like everything should be abundant. Um, and no restrictions, no boundaries, no walls. And, for me, this is one of the things I just absolutely love about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin's kind of like a, it's almost like a classical solution to model, modern problems, right? It's like a, Bitcoin is a set of restrictions, effectively, like, you know, 21 million, the block size, the block height, you know, the, the block time, like all this sort of shit. It's like a set of restrictions that then kind of give you some guardrails within which to operate because like, you know, if you have unbounded freedom, you, you don't actually have any order or structure. So, you know, there's a, there's something I quoted in this new book that I'm writing, which is like, I actually think unbounded freedom, like complete liberty maximalism is actually immoral because you need some sort of responsibility and order in order to like, to, to bring some, I guess, conservatism to the, to the process, you, you know, like there, there needs to be a counterbalance to complete uh, open freedom and liberty. And, um, and, and anyway, like to, to me, that sort of ties into this concept of, um, of quality over quantity because quality is something that is a conscious restriction on stuff. And, you know, w- what are we drowning in today? We're drowning in just noise. We, you know, everything's fucking free. You've got information all over the place. Like everyone's throwing shit at us and trying to decipher through that stuff and being able to consciously, as you said, pick fewer, deeper friends because you have a certain amount of time that you you know, have available to you to build the depth and to have shared experiences. Um, and then with respect to the stuff that you consume, like, you know, what you do, like whether it's food or information or the people you spend time with or the stuff you do with your kids, whatever, like putting like limits on those things, I think is, um, I don't know, it's, it's really important. And I feel like the older I get, the more I start to really appreciate all that stuff. So a bit of a rambling tangent, but no, but I mean, I mean, we can tie this into the Bitcoin times latest uh, volume, but before we even get there, like, I mean, this is sort of an idea that is reiterated time and time again over history, whether it be via religions or certain types of uh, monastic cultures, which is like you mentioned mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the the samurai virtues. I mean, mm-hmm. Catholicism. You have the virtues. I mean, the Tower of Babel is a story in the Bible that really highlights what you just said. You have a quantity of all these languages that just confuses people and sets them off mm-hmm. all these wrong paths um, towards hedonism and um, structure is not a bad thing. And I agree, Bitcoin does bring back structure. Through the digital age, particularly um, from a monetary aspect, and it's a lot of what the Austrians are preaching too, right? Like with with human mm-hmm. action, it's like if you have a a money that is 
sort of structured and is somewhat uh, predictable. You have very stringent rules of that money with the gold standard. It was, um, there's so much amount of gold above ground and we know via market forces that only so much will be produced year in and year out, depending on what the price is at any given point in time due to the cost to actually get that gold out of the ground. And now with Bitcoin, it's gold on, on steroids. Um, but the main sort of thesis being that like, if you have this money that's run on somewhat strict rules, you can, you can begin to order your life outside of that monetary system within the economy in a much more efficient way that is going to bring more quality to the market. Shit, I had myself muted. Yeah, totally. Like the, these limitations are necessary. And like in, in many ways, I would think of uh, responsibility as a virtue that is a virtue of self-imposed uh, limitation, right? Like when you want to be responsible, like, you know, it's all good and well to stay up till three o'clock in the morning, you know, but the responsible person is like, I got to get up at six to get some sunshine, go for a run, go to the gym, etc. So like the responsible person places a limitation on themselves, go to bed at 10 o'clock, for example, or the responsible person doesn't overeat, you know, or the responsible person puts money aside to save, you know, like, so, so this kind of, this ability to place restraint, uh, onto, uh, Things that you could otherwise be free to do, uh, I think, is a, is a sign of maturity, right? And this kind of comes back to, I mean, it all, it's, it's funny how all these things like have parallels, right? It touches on what we were talking about before about like maturity and becoming an adult, you know, when you're younger. Like the way you do that is by realizing that it's not all about just like unhinged freedom. Like I, I started to even cringe when I see like, you know, liberty maximalism on, uh, on people's Twitter profiles. I'm like, no, you know, like, can you add some responsibility maximalism there as well, please? Like, because you sort of can't have one without the other, right? Yeah. No, I mean, the libertarian meme is a meme for a reason mm -hmm. because it just completely co-ops and corrupts the, the good themes of the movement, which is like, Hey, non-aggression principle. I'm not doing anything wrong. Don't, don't, you shouldn't physically harm me or put me in jail. Um, but then you get like the hedonistic side totally, of libertarians yeah, yeah. that want like kitty porn and fairies and all that shit to be, uh, above board as well. It just, yeah. Well, that's the shit coiners, right? It's like, I, I you know, I, I'm, People are consenting to it, so why not, right? It's. I, I read this uh, essay about a week ago. It was called um, oh, something like it was on Substack. Something something to do with like consent not being a moral standard, right? It's like just just because someone consents to something doesn't mean that it's a it's a good thing. It's like and one thing I remember from the essay right at the end, he says um, we shouldn't be asking ourselves, you know, where is the harm? We should be asking ourselves where is the good. Like, and that's a you know very different thing is because it's like, you know, wh where is the good in rolling fucking hex coin? Like, I mean, other than, you know, that fat ass buying new Louis Vuitton, you know, jumpsuits, I, I don't see, you know, any good out of that whole project. But, you know, his argument will be, where is the harm? There is consent. There is a, there is a market for it. And like that kind of stuff to me is like, 
please, you know, get in the into the realm of like, you know, ethics and morality and a sort of deeper thinking, which I don't know, I feel like we've, you know, to a large degree lost in the world. Like I was speaking to a dude the other day who's who was pitching me a business idea of like he wants to make um basically an app to make uh you know ordering hookers easier. <laughs> like, and he's like, you know, the whole world's degenerate, so like may as well. And I'm like, well that's why the whole world's degenerate. Like because it's the may as well attitude. Um, yeah. There's a market here. I should exploit it. It's like uh you yeah. have to have the the urge control to to put your effort somewhere else, which is that's maybe that's another point that should be brought up. It's not always easy. And the easy path is the hedonist path where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's much easier to just be sexually promiscuous, to put off building a family, to uh, mm-hmm. scam people with shit coins, whatever it may be. It's a lot easier. You can literally hit a button with shit coins and spin one up. And if you can tell a good story totally. behind it, it's very profitable. It's much harder yeah. to build out. A critical layered infrastructure like people are attempting to do on Bitcoin takes longer. There's not a lot as much re- immediate reward. Um, and so you have that and can bring in time preference. You have that, that time preference aspect where people want quick thrills instead of slow, methodical uh, building of a cathedral that, that could bring long-term prosperity to, to others. This is, this is, touches actually back to the samurai culture and even even chivalric culture is um is this idea so in in the feudal age the merchants were actually seen uh as below the peasants uh, particularly by the samurai samurai had like a major disdain for the merchant class um in in the feudal hierarchy and that was because the merchant class were were known to be the type to just abandon any moral compass like they didn't believe in that like they would easily be bought and sold right they could sell someone else they could buy someone they could do that's all that mattered like it was just pure commerciality to them whereas you know the samurai sort of had this uh perception of themselves which is like honor above money for example so kind of like this idea of like reputation almost as a currency it's like there's there is this moral dimension to the universe that has its own sort of measure that you can't um, you can't quantify with uh, coin, for example, and and that's sort of like the warriors like uh, operated on that realm, while the merchants operated on the other realm. Now, you know, I, I, I do think in, that this is something I put forth in the book is like you know, could Bitcoin uh, create an like a, a healthy overlap between sort of this. Uh, this commercial reality of the world where, you know, sort of like you have this material realm that requires money in order to measure it and uh, kind of tie uh, deeds to consequences, right? And, and, you know, Bitcoin does that very well. You know, if you're a moron and you spend all your money, you're going to have no money and there's no way sort of to socialize that loss, right? Um, And, you know, does that in some way tie into, you know, this sort of different moral dimension of, um, you know, of ethics, values, reputation, um, and some sort of like, you know, almost like a, a moral ledger to existence, um, you know, does better behavior in the material realm, like kind of reflected in some way or impacted. So, so it's a, it's a very interesting, um, thing that I guess we'll, we'll only find out 200 years from now, right? After we're dead and 
looking at our children's children. I don't know if we have to, I don't even know if we have to wait that long. I think we're actually seeing a microcosm of this play out right now, like after 2022, like if you think of Bitcoin and the overarching crypto space in 2023, I think last year, a lot of people who were sort of playing both sides of the fence DCG being a good example of this, BlockFi, the people that built those companies, Gemini, and, and these services, I think they've burnt a lot of their reputational capital mm-hmm. over the last 12 months. And moving forward, the people who really put reputation ahead of profits, you think of companies like Unchained, like River, mm-hmm. disclaimer, sponsored the podcast, but it's for a reason. Like, I align yeah, with yeah. these people because I think they... Uh, have the good long-term vision or building out infrastructure the correct way or not scamming mm-hmm. people um, in the future. I think it's going to be hard for the people in the last year who burnt that reputational capital to actually uh, come back and, and begin building the critical infrastructure. I think people are, maybe they come back and they say, Hey, I'd like to build this with you or invest with you. And I think, you know, it's yet to be seen, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, many of the people who are building the critical infrastructure like, no, go away. I don't want to be associated with you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. they may have gotten quick profits in the first 14 years of Bitcoin, but it's still very early in the game. And a lot of those people burnt that reputational capital. And I don't think it's going to be easy to recoup that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a you know very, very valid point. And, you know, that sort of adds evidence to the idea that, you know, there, there probably is a, um, you know, an overlap or at least an influence between these sort of two, two worlds. So it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting thing. Yeah, it is going to be interesting. Does it validate the Austrian thesis? Does it validate? I I think, I think so. I mean, the, it's funny. So one of the chapters actually in this book, so I tried to like pull on, uh, on some threads, like I looked at, uh, ancient traditions that had some overlap with Bushido. And then I tried to like create a, a, a code of virtues of Austrians. Um, and like I said, you know, I'm well aware of the fact there is no fucking, uh, you know, moral code of Austrian economics, but I said, if there were, uh, these are sort of the, um, the, the virtues that I would imagine it has. And, you know, sort of, there was like, uh, integrity in there um there was uh responsibility um self-control you know restraint and and, and i think that one is specifically like a very uh very austrian like ethic you know this idea of don't just go and push the fucking money printer button every time you have a problem like you know have some self-control god damn it um and, and i think that you know in in the in this because we've sort of been in the century of no self-control right we've been in the century of like complete abandon, like do whatever the fuck you want to do, drop bombs on people, go, you know, do this to people, lock everyone down, like do whatever the fuck you want to do. Sort of this century has been, um, and you know, print as much money as you want, solve whatever problem you want. And you know, the Austrians have sort of been like sitting here on the corner saying, no, it's a bad idea. And like everyone's been ignoring them. And you know, now that it's time to sort of pay the piper, uh, you know, I mean, most people are oblivious to what the actual problems are. Obviously, you know, they they think that the problems are the you know the greedy capitalists for raising their prices at the uh, you know like the, the the greedy 
corner uh, petrol station who's making three cents profit <laughs> on the uh, on the gas. It's his fault. <laughs> Well, you know, Biden and crew are like taking 80 cents. Like, you know, that that's that's the level of intellect that we're dealing with uh, in the world today. But like, you know, at, at some point, you know, the, you know, the, the tide is coming out, the tide is receding and, you know, people are sort of starting to get a sense for, you know, where, where the real problems are. And, and this is, you know, maybe the Bitcoin is like the Austrians last laugh. It's like, you know, we try to warn you. You know, this sort of shit doesn't work. And like, you know, Bitcoin's this emergent phenomenon that is like made, I guess, to, for lack of a better term, Austrian economics great again. Like it's the, it's the trump card. It's the ace in the, in the sleeve that we've sort of had this entire time. Yeah. And I guess it's a perfect segue to talk about the latest volume of the Bitcoin Times, volume five, correct? Indeed, yes. The Austrian um, the Austrian edition. And so is this what you tried to get through with the consortium of writers that you, you collected in this volume to really get this message across how Bitcoin works, how it changes things. And then, mm-hmm. then Rahim obviously has a piece that's, um, that's focused on uh, a different sort of tangential idea um, to Bitcoin mm-hmm. as well. So really trying to, yeah, the history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the whole the whole premise of this. So this was the first edition that I specifically looked to do around a theme, right? So all the previous editions were sort of more like hobby esque in a sense. Uh, you know, the, the like last year's edition, or shit, we're actually in twenty twenty three. So sorry, twenty twenty one's edition was called A New Hope. So that had like Farrington and. Uh, Toma and Brandon Quidham and stuff like that. And it was like a collection of essays. And there, there was a bit of a theme there. The, the theme there was like, hey, you know, last year in 2020, you know, we got a, guy, a bunch of guys together and we wrote about how fucked up the world is. Um, and, you know, that was like Jeff Booth and Parker Lewis and all that sort of stuff. And like sort of, you know, what Bitcoin's role is to play in, you know, maybe fixing that. But it was kind of like a, I, I just shouldn't say depressing, but it was, a, it was more downbeat. And so then 2021, I was like, let's do something that's more of a, you know, hopeful and, you know, each of the pieces were magnificent in edition four, but edition five was really, okay, let's, let's take a a theme or a concept and let's look at Bitcoin through this theme. And then let's look at the theme through Bitcoin. So sort of like this two way lens and yeah, the the theme was the sort of this Austrian idea. And I mean, I'm so fucking happy with how the design came out. I I don't actually have one on me physically because I'm overseas, but do you have one on you by any chance? I do. Yeah, it's like McKenna did a fantastic job like that. And then, you know, the back cover is like my favorite with like all of the greats sort of collaged in there. You know, yeah, I love the pieces. You guys base the color scheme off of like the roof of this. Right. Yes, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, what we did was actually we took we took that uh, building, and then we used some like you know one of those like AI things to kind of like make it give it a sense of like an oil painting, and then we used that color tone all the way throughout. Um, yeah, so, it's very so yeah very, so so anyway, very beautifully done. Thank you, sir. So the yeah the the design sort of all came together to kind of like you know bring forward this this idea, but yeah, each writer so. It was like, I think my claim to fame on this one is I managed to convince Bitstein to come out of hibernation and, and start writing again. So that was like my, you know, one of my goals. Um, so Pierre obviously wrote a piece in there. Um, uh, Saifedean, Rahim, 
Conrad Graf, who I, I don't know if a lot of Bitcoiners knew know who he is. Like I didn't actually know who he was until like I was having a conversation with Bitsin and he mentioned you know Conrad as someone that should definitely was it actually. No, it was actually Tua Demista who was who mentioned him. Who Tua was supposed to actually write a piece for this, and he just you know had some personal things going on, so he couldn't couldn't make it. So maybe one day I'll do an Austrian edition too, or something, or maybe a history edition because I think Tua would be great for that. But yeah, he mentioned Conrad, and you know Conrad wrote a magnificent uh, essay in there, and yeah, basically each person took a took an idea, and you know Safer Deans was this uh, making time preference low again, like. This idea of we've basically been talking about it this entire podcast, like maturity as a, as something that occurs as one has the ability to save money and therefore lower time preference and therefore mature as an individual, and that's kind of like the the loop of uh, of Safedin's piece, obviously, but you know in more depth, and he looks at like. You know, time preference in civilization, time preference in the individual, time preference in Bitcoin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and yeah, P- Pierre did P- Pierre did one which has a really like it's one of those short pieces with like one killer idea that you most people maybe haven't thought about, but it's like he talks about the difference between risk and uncertainty, and why risk is something that you can sort of. Uh, account for you know and that's why things like insurance exist but uncertainty is something that can only be minimized uh through a technology like savings um and you know the the ability to save across time is dependent upon the uh basically the 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 commodity good or network that actually acts as money and he uses that as the argument that bitcoin is actually a uncertainty reducing mechanism and that's why it's better money than gold because gold has more inherent uh, uncertainties associated with it. um so you know you can he and, and what he does by doing that is he kind of separates the discussion about price risk versus the actual functionality of bitcoin as a network and as a as a good um from the through the lens of uncertainty which i thought was like really powerful it actually took me twice to read that essay before that like point actually clicked and i was like fuck that's such a good like uh, separation. So, like when people, you know, want to think about like the gold versus Bitcoin article or argument. Sorry, that like article is such a good one. Yeah, and a good follow up to that one is uh, a piece that Bitstein just dropped in his Substack around Bitcoin mm-hmm. being a speculative abs- asset. It's mm-hmm. uh, he really mm-hmm. dives into that concept of risk versus uncertainty there too. Um, oh, beautiful! Yeah. Fuck, I haven't read that yet. Yeah, it's a good. It's a great short read, but. Um, no, but all these concepts are important to understand. Yeah, they're, they're like the sort of like I, I kind of think about it as um, as like using an intellectual scalpel, and and, and this is something you and I were talking about this. So you know, we'll probably make an announcement on this podcast about what this year's edition is going to be. But um, you know, when I was speaking to these authors about like contributing, and you know, I said this to you the other day, it's like a lot of the stuff that you know we talk about and that we're going to write about bitcoin is in some way shape or form been said by someone already or the connection's been made or someone sort of said something about it on twitter but like being able to i don't know take these ideas and these overlaps and try and either shine a new light on it or a different angle or something like that or at least come away with like one or two good ideas like requires 
almost like a, an intellectual scalpel. Like you need to be able to like slice through to like the core of an idea and kind of like pull that out and be like here. And I think that, um, that yeah, each of the authors in this, like I think did a really good job of that. Um, but it's, it's a challenge, especially in, you know, in an industry like Bitcoin where, you know, everyone's fucking writer apparently like, you know, everyone's writing something. <laughs> like, there's, there's so much fucking content out there, right? Oh yes. Oh yes. No, that's what I'm excited. I mean, I know you teased it, but I'm really excited to be a part of the next edition because that's something I write almost every day, but, um, it's like I was telling you last week, it's a bit ephemeral. It's a hot take on mm-hmm. something that's mm-hmm. going on in the space or something I've been thinking about and really sitting down and thinking about the topic that I'm going to write about and spending a lot more time on it. Um, and hopefully it can be a more evergreen piece that, um, that is not as ephemeral as the, as the daily newsletter is something that's really exciting to me. Totally. I, I mean, well, we may as well tell people what it is. So like the, this year's edition, uh, so the 2023 edition is going to be the energy edition. So this idea of like looking at Bitcoin through the lens of energy and looking at energy as, as a concept, as an idea through, uh, through the lens of Bitcoin, you know, and, and sort of what that symbiosis, because like, for me, I, I can't remember wh- who said this like on Twitter, like ages ago, I could have been Breedlove, but sort of, um, you know, kind of like co- framing Bitcoin as energy money, it could have been sa- sailor or something like that, but just sort of that idea that like energy is, um, and I remember reading Vaclav Smil's book, uh, Energy and Civilization. In there, he quotes energy as like the um, the universal currency, and and it really is like you know, other than time, like you know, energy is this sort of thing that's like a closed circuit, and you know, you just can't like sort of create a little bit more here on the side just because like you know everything that we're doing is a is a tapping in or a transformation of energy, and you know that sort of you know closed conservative sort of uh, ideal just maps so well over to the idea of uh, a money that is like based in fucking reality. And for me, that's, um, that, that's what Bitcoin does so well. And, th- and that's what the shitcoiners, for example, don't see. Like they just try and virtualize away the, the, very, uh, the very reality of something like energy time you know that you can't sort of create more of those so it's like let's just fucking pretend that doesn't exist and let's just play our virtual game over here um so if you got any thoughts on that i mean it's literally tied to the function of the network proof of work it's funny because like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what is energy energy helps you be more productive it helps you do more work it helps you leverage your intellect and your your like ability to move things in the physical world uh, to be more productive. And I think when it comes to Bitcoin and energy, particularly, I mean, energy is uniquely tied to this digital asset where it doesn't work without energy. And that's mm-hmm. why it's mm-hmm. proof of work. Like you need to prove that you've mm-hmm. spent energy in the real world to create this value in the digital world. And, and I, I, I know many Bitcoiners like myself have been talking about it for years, but I really don't think that the wider public really understands this very unique connection of the physical world Mm -hmm. via energy and the digital world via the scarce token that has a profound, will have a profound, has had a profound impact on, on humanity. Most people don't realize it yet. 
Yeah. Yeah, dude, like Brandon Quidden like wrote that piece in edition four about the uh, the pioneer species, right? Like how, you know, you, you plant a Bitcoin miner somewhere and in the same way as a pioneer species kind of becomes the the thing that like concentric circles of life kind of form around. Like, you know, a, a Bitcoin mining operation essentially becomes the you know, the thing that bootstraps uh, energy in a region that energy was probably not profitable to, um, you know, to install or extract. And like that kind of thinking blows my fucking mind when I think about, you know, fast forwarding 50, 100 years from now, like how basically inextricably linked and tied to, you know, energy that, you know, money is going to become. Like that's such a fucking big brain. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, that meme with the, with the Wojak with the fucking brain kind of coming out and <laughs> sitting on it. That, that sort of reminds me of that. It's like when you think about how much of a, you know, how much of a profound impact that is. And it makes me think like whether Satoshi actually thought of that um, or not, like, you know, how much of this, um, how much of this sort of thinking and ideology is like emergent because we've kind of got this thing now, like thinking about all the other stuff we can do with it versus, you know, how much this progenitor of Bitcoin like could envision, but just sort of kept to himself so that he didn't sound like a fucking maniac in the beginning. Yeah. Well, it's emergent, but we're also just observing what's happening. I think that's the best part about this particular topic is it's not like hypothesizing or theorizing about what it could do. Yes. Maybe it is theorizing about what it could do at scale, but we're observing this happen in real life. I mean, you have plenty of examples like gridless, in Kenya, it's what they're doing to bring cheaper electricity to these rural areas. Uh, I just had Adam Popescu on, who wrote that piece on Virunga National Park and how they're using mining um, at a hydroelectric dam with excess capacity to um, to basically drive revenues for the national park and make sure the people nice. that are living in the area have electricity. Uh, we're seeing it at Standard Bitcoin. Uh, in rural parts of Tennessee, where we're helping uh, the local economies, the rural economies that have had falling populations uh, over the last few decades due to a hollowing out of their manufacturing base uh, due to globalization. Um, we're helping them economically keep electricity prices low. Like the proof is in the pudding. I think that's my favorite part about this particular connection with, with Bitcoin and energy in this. Um, this uh, what did that, what did uh, Brandon call him? The um, pioneer species. Pioneer species, like it's actually happening. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. It's um, there's, I mean, you know, the the other rabbit hole that I think is going to become more significant in the coming five years is sort of the the relationship, well, maybe not relationship, but like the emergence of nuclear power as well, and like how Bitcoin might be able to help bootstrap that because, like, you know, we, we are living in a in a just an extraordinarily strange era. Like, you know, you, you've got these incompetent buffoons that, you know, they can't conceive of like how people can find a way to, you know, create more flourishing by creating more energy that they think that the only solution is to just like turn everything off, you know, and like, basically reverse the clock. Like it's, it's just so, it's so petty and pathetic um, that like, 
you know, we're actually living in a world where people are running around saying like carbon is bad and that energy is bad. Well, that, yeah. I mean, that gets to the point, like they're creating a solution to a problem that I honestly don't, don't believe exists. And then tying this back to like Austrian monetary theory, like they're only allowed to LARP about this problem because they can print money and throw it at it Mm -hmm. uh, with this Mm -hmm. decommissioning of nuclear plants in favor of wind and solar, whatever it may be. Like this is only a product of uh, subsidies where you're subsidizing these inefficient, unreliable energy sources that are making our grids less secure and less reliable at the end of the day because you can just print money and create these credits out of thin air and give them to these companies. And it's weird, actually, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, um, which is like Bitcoin mining provides this mechanism pre-Bitcoin standard to actually like keep that LARP going because now a big problem a lot of these solar and wind problem uh, farms have, which is similar to the, the nuclear generation problem, which is like they can build up all this capacity, but it takes a while to build up the transmission lines to actually deliver it. Mm-hmm. And so now with Bitcoin mining, being able to be the buyer first resort that electricity while you're waiting for the transmission lines mm-hmm. to get built out and the subsidized crap is actually like, oh, look, like it's, it's even better now. We have Bitcoin mining <laughs> that can uh, finance these operations, produce revenues early on. <laughs> but under a Bitcoin standard, or you can make the argument that the subsidies, um, the handouts to, to get those projects off the ground in the first place probably wouldn't exist. You'd be building more reliable uh, energy sources that, are, that have actual costs or their costs are represented what, in, in the actual price. What, what do you think happens there over the long term, actually? Um, you know, do, do you think that because you know, as Bitcoin becomes more prevalent, it you know it fucks with you know the incentives and you know things like subsidies, etc., become less attractive. But at the same time, in the short term, while there is these incentives, you know people will try and use Bitcoin mining, for example, as you said, to to subsidize or to to justify these subsidies and going and building. So it kind of like it's almost like a you know Bitcoin's chewing away at the integrity of these you know unreliable sources of energy but in in the short term kind of supporting them so like do you think it it gets to a point where it kind of uh, you know erodes them so that they just abolish altogether or do you think um, it gets cheap enough like we get better at those things by virtue of Bitcoin existing like what's your thoughts there I don't know. I don't. Th- I, in my opinion, just if you look at the raw materials necessary to do mm-hmm. any of the mm-hmm. "quote unquote" renewable energy at scale, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I think it goes back to something that we were discussing earlier in this discussion, which is self-control. I think if you're a Bitcoin miner that is actually a Bitcoiner who thinks we're going to transition to a Bitcoin standard, you're partaking in a big marshmallow test right now. Like, yes, mm-hmm. you may get low cost of electricity um, with the subsidized energy right now. But if the dollar keeps de- getting debased and the subsidies go away, like you could be setting up what you think to be a multi-decade mining operation and something that's not going to be profitable at some point in mm-hmm. the medium term, uh, which again, going back to self-control, I think a lot of people in the industry need to, keep the marshmallow on the table and think 
about second and third order effects of Bitcoin succeeding and saying, uh, maybe I, I shouldn't be spending all this capital and time on this operation because if Bitcoin succeeds, which I would imagine many miners, not all, but many think it's going to succeed. And that's why they start mining businesses in the first place mm-hmm. um, should internalize that, that re that future reality. If Bitcoin does take over that they're going to be mining on electric using electricity is going to become significantly more expensive because it's not being subsidized anymore. Mm-hmm. So are these, are these solar farms like, being subsidized from a capex standpoint that's sort of what you mean right is like so you know they they're building a business model around this is the cost of setting up because once it's set up right there isn't really a cost to the production on an ongoing basis yeah yeah i think it's dual faceted it's the initial capital you can get um like cheap loans if you're doing a renewable project and then uh, on an ongoing basis you get tax credits so you get reduce tax bills uh, for uh, 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 okay. operating that type of, which just gives a weird like, uh, I, I think uh, taxes are bad and immoral as well. Um, but when you compare like, why, why should one, why should a coal plant or a natural gas plant have to pay higher taxes? Just because, yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. So it just perturbs the, totally. the pricing mechanism of all this shit. Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because yeah, I, I I get reached out a lot by people saying, oh, you know, um, we're we're looking at doing this uh, Bitcoin mining and it's sustainable and you know, I, whenever I hear the word sustainable, I just like I I'm like cringing, waiting for like the solar panel piece or the wind piece. Like, well, that's again, language is important here. Sustainable and renewable particularly because I wrote a piece about this a couple of weeks ago, which is the, the whole term renewable is a massive psyop because to the unwitting masses, it, it puts a picture of this perpetual motion machine mm-hmm. in their head where yes, the sun is likely to, to rise every day and the wind is likely to blow pretty consistently in some areas. So they are, sustained sources of energy but you have to harness that energy and so like when you say renewable mm-hmm. energy um, people think of this perpetual motion machine but it's not a perpetual motion machine these technologies that harness that solar wind energy have front ends of their supply chains which are very energy intensive and depend on uh, fossil fuels and then while they're up and running it takes a lot of maintenance uh, you got to replace parts you got to scrub the solar panels do all that. And then on the back end, these things have life cycles. They don't, they're not perpetual motion machines. You don't just mm-hmm. set them in motion and they run into perpetuity. They have a few decades at best, and then you have to replace them. And that comes with a, another front end of the supply chain, another capital injection, more maintenance. Like it's not the, the whole term renewable just really puts this idea in people's head that simply isn't true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, w- one of my pet fucking peeves is like the um, you. Know, I think there was that photo going around of like the solar panels in the in the um in the landfill, and mm-hmm. it's like you know just I mean both both in the landfill and then outside of the fucking landfill these like large beautiful areas like especially when they cover grass up like you know you got these grassy hills this sort of like beautiful land that could be like pasture land or something or just just beautiful and green and they're like just cover it up with these fucking panels it's like it's the most 
I don't know, like fiat nature degrading shit I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a, yeah, the negative externalities of the environmental destruction just comes from them existing and not allowing light to actually reach the plants mm-hmm. that that desperately rely on photosynthesis. Like that's not talked about. I mean, uh, I mean wildlife animals that are affected by this the the trade-off again it's just use the terms renewable sustainable and try to make everybody believe that these are good terms that should be striven for and then you don't talk about the trade-offs that come with it it's again i think Mm -hmm. a big psyop and a disingenuous marketing campaign totally totally it just it like really rubs me the wrong way and, and it's funny just like for the record when i was in my early 20s you know i i was totally psyoped and i was selling solar panels you know that's what we we're putting on people's houses and stuff like that and the only reason the only reason that people did any of that was because the government paid for half of the system through these credits um and then they gave people uh, input tariff uh deductions so that way you know if you we're running solar panels like it made pure economic sense to do so and, and it, i always find this funny it's like you know the, the keynesians and like this to tie it back into the austrian economics piece it's like they, they laugh at austrians and say oh you know incentives don't matter right so then the way they get their stupid programs and ideas across the line is by offering you know tax write-offs or you know tariff inputs or fucking made-up certificates which inevitably you know, skew the economic system in some way, but it actually incentivizes people to go and make a decision uh, much better than any of their other methods. Um, so it's like they, they 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 ignore the Austrian school of thought when it doesn't benefit them, and then they use the basis of Austrian thought, which is incentives, uh, when it does benefit them. It's such yeah. a fucking laugh. It drives me crazy. When they can control the incentives, they like, they like to... Uh to rely on that, that core principle. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. It's like, oh, it doesn't exist. Oh, I, but for this, it exists. Okay. Yeah. But okay, going back to like order and structuring and stuff like that, I think I recorded an episode earlier or last year with, uh, a gentleman by the name of John Constable out of the UK. And I think if you freaks haven't listened to that episode yet, you should go back and listen to it because you're going back to this concept of order and entropy like it's much mm-hmm. when, you, when you just look at uh, a a photon produced by the sun versus kinetic energy produced by wind versus hydrocarbons versus nuclear energy like literally the structured order uh, has a spectrum and on the far left mm-hmm. of the spectrum very little order is solar and wind and as you get closer towards nuclear you get more and more order and structure which allows you to be more efficient and productive with those particular mm-hmm. sources of energy i mean that's so order basically what you're saying is like brings density right yes, because that's exactly. essentially what you're doing yeah exactly yeah that, that's that's such a great analogy um i'm gonna go back and listen to that that's a um, yeah like because c- th- that's essentially what um what noise is right like noise is uh is like filling the air with um with unstructured stuff right like and and this sort of like ties into another thing that i've you know done a lot of thinking on is like music you know like why does 
some music sound good and just some music sound like fucking, you know, like screeching in your head, right? Like, so there's something about like, you know, the, the fractal nature of the universe that certain, you know, like why does the fucking octave exist like in music? Like it just does. Like there's a, there's a pattern there. Right. And like, it's a, it's a, it's a function of order, as you said, and it's a, it's a function of like a, a density of, um, of like, uh, tonality and sound, like to sort of fit within a framework, you know? And this is, it's funny. It's like, you know, shit coining is basically just noise. Shit coining is saying that, oh, okay, we don't need an octave in music. We can just play whatever fucking note we want to play. Like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. No, it's, we can do it, so we should, but maybe you shouldn't because it, it hurts our ears. It, like, it's it, not pleasant. It sounds fucking bad. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah. A lot of people have bad taste, um, as we found out <laughs> the last four years. That is true. That is true. That is true. And, and you know what? And then they try and turn the bad taste into a virtue. Did you see that? Like, there was an ad the other day, like, celebrating ugliness or some shit. No, I didn't I was see like, it. You gotta be fucking kidding me bro i was like i mean i've i've honestly like i've kind of like muted and unsubscribed from a lot of the clown world news and all that sort of stuff because i just can't handle it anymore like i i know how retarded the world is and just being reminded of it every day like i, I just don't think it's good for the soul anymore like i think we all got sucked into the psyop in 2020 2021 2022 like me, me particularly like last year if i look back on my you know particularly my behavior on twitter and stuff like that i was like an angry motherfucker and and i think it was just a a function of just I don't know, man. Like I was just frustrated with just like how categorically stupid everything was. Um, so I think like for my own mental health, like I've stopped like paying any attention to that stuff, but you know, some stuff still seems to like find its way through the cracks. And I just saw that yesterday. I was like, oh, fuck, you gotta be kidding me. I am celebrate being ugly and fat. I'm happy to report that I missed that, that sigh <laughs> that messaging doesn't surprise me. Well, it's out there, but no, I agree. Actually, my, Twitter usage has gone down pretty significantly over the last Dude. three months. Um, Dude, mine since December, like, you know, I just like got off from Christmas and I just haven't properly been back on. Like I maybe tweeted like 20 times in the last month. It feels so fucking good. Yeah, like, it does. And that's the other thing is it's not, I never, I didn't make like the intentional decision to tweet less. I think I've just been busier with family mm -hmm. life and, and work and been more focused on real stuff. Right. Real stuff, yeah, exactly. Which is a good. I'm happy that is happening. It's uh, Twitter is a very potent distraction when you're actually trying to get shit done. It really is, man. Like it just sucks you in. And um, like you know, one thing that helped me was like I deleted the app from my phone, so like the only way I access it now is through the computer. And you know, that's like it's uh, it's helped a lot. Like I mean, it's funny. Like we we keep coming back to this theme of quality and quantity, right? It's like you know, quality is just so precious and it's it's funny it's like quality is wasted on the youth you know because when you're young you sort of you've got this kind of illusion that everything's going to be great you know you're fit like you you heal really quickly like i've noticed this as well like you know when i was in my early 20s like i had this major motorbike accident once like i got bumped by a truck and um and like i came off my bike and i was going like almost 60 miles an hour so it was like you know, maybe 50 miles an hour is like 80 kilometers. And, you know, I, I was young and wild. I never wore any protective clothing, never wore any gloves, any of that sort of shit. And I was on a CBR 600 double R, like a, a sports Honda. And, 
you know, I slid down the road um, for probably like 50 meters, so uh, 50 yards, like I think that's 150 feet. And like I, I still remember the, the accident because I was like falling in slow motion. And I remember like earlier that day I had an alert from my Mac that said you haven't backed up your Mac for, you know, 97 days or some shit. And all I could imagine was like my MacBook was in my backpack and so, like, I could have fallen on my back and, like, been okay. But instead, like, I put my hand down and, like, I slid Ooh. on my ass in my hand. And I saved the MacBook, um, but I, like, literally ripped the fucking skin off my hand, like, clean off my, uh. my whole palm. And the doctors were like, you know, first of all, you know, you're an idiot for not wearing, you know, uh, um, gloves and all this sort of stuff, but they're like, you know, you're probably not going to be able to use your hand for a month. Dude, I was back in the gym in four days, like four or five days. I was back in the gym. Like it was insane. Like the doctors were like, what the fuck? How did you like, you know, your skin healed up, like, like calling me Wolverine. But now like 10 years later, motherfucker, I like go to the gym, do a bench press, hurt my back. And then I'm fucked up for like a week. <laughs> you're laid up. <laughs> yeah, Bro, right. it's so bad. So, I don't know, like the older you get, the more, you know, you sort of think back to your youth. You like kind of want to slap yourself in the face. It's like, you know, quality motherfucker. Like, cause you just, you, sh you scatter all your energy, like in your twenties, like you're doing like 10 million things at once. Like you're so fucking busy being busy. Um, you know, you're just like expending all this energy and like, you know, sort of come to this point where I'm like, man, it's not about quantity. Like it really isn't about more stuff, more things. Like it's about like, trying to like condense that to, to a few things and like focus is a superpower. Yeah. Focus is super out is a superpower and impact, right? Like when yeah. you're focused on quantity and doing as much as you possibly can, and you have just like a, a flattened out impact and all those different experiences that mm -hmm. you're embarking on where if you focus on quality uh, of a few things, you can have a much larger impact than, than you would if you were spread thin. That's something. Yeah, I've... it's like it's, it's concentration, right? Yeah, exactly. That's something I'm. Yeah, yeah. I'm going back to like the diamond thing. I think that's mm -hmm. something I've experienced uh, in the last five years, particularly in the professional life with this podcast, the newsletter, the mining stuff, and ten thirty one. It's really like um, at a point where I'm just sort of trying to perfect the the focus that I have on, on these things instead of, I think maybe three or four years ago, I was trying to get involved in as many things as possible. It's like, no, I'm good at these things. Let's focus on this and make these better. Yeah. Adulting, bro. That's uh, I think that's the stage <laughs> we're at now. Like trying to become adults. Yeah. It's probably not but, a coincidence um, that I've had two children over that span as well, which is totally, totally, totally. And yeah, I mean, for me, I'm not at the kid stage yet, but yeah, I actually decided to take the leap. Like when I was younger, I never thought I was going to get married. And then here I am like, and, and you know what? I, I think a part of that actually has been, you know, the, the idea of, you know, maturity and time preference and shit like that, that's come from Bitcoin. So, you know, maybe that answers my question that I was talking about earlier is like, does Bitcoin have uh, an impact on that? And, you know, if it's not Bitcoin specifically that has the impact, at least it's the perception that a bunch of us Bitcoiners have that, you know, time preference is important. And, you know, we've kind of like expanded on this idea and it's almost become like a bit of a mind virus. It's like slow down, focus, think long term. 
And, um, you know, we're, we're finding our own maturity in the presence of something like Bitcoin, which is kind of really interesting to see. Yeah. And we're like going back to like time and how old we are too. I'm in my early thirties now. I've been so weird. I found Bitcoin when I was 21 and just wow. being exposed to it for a better part of a decade, a full decade almost. It's like you, you learn. I've seen too many shit coin market cycles, too many Bitcoin, like this bear market, everybody is freaking out. And I'm, I felt relatively calm, cool, and collected um, and able to focus. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of people, I've witnessed a lot of people during this bear market freak out and lose focus where this is the exact time to be doubling, tripling down and really yeah. like building out um, what will be successful in the next cycle. Totally. Um, is there any is there any other threads you want to pull on from the from the Austrian edition? I think we should talk about Michael's piece because I think that's yes. a really powerful piece. I actually helped him. Um, I actually read that uh, a couple times for him before it was published. And I think mm-hmm. it's just an extremely important piece to really understand the governance of of Bitcoin and the importance of running a full node how that fits into the context of, of Austrian theory. Mm-hmm. So what, if you had to sum up um, the, the importance of a node, because even to this day, I still have um, an element of trouble in like trying to, you know, I'm going to say like speaking to my mum, for example, like I, I don't think I would be able to convince her of like, the importance of running a node. So, so how, how do you generally go about uh, explaining that or, or why, why is it important what's your one-liner well i don't know if it's a one-liner but um if you juxtapose it i think i think it's all about like uh, freedom of association and participation in in this truly distributed network that will give you uh assurances that can bring a sound money standard to the world, right? We juxtapose it with the centrally controlled central banking system with master nodes, very few full nodes, mm-hmm. master nodes. You can't audit, you can't, um, there's no transparency. There's, you don't have any say on how that monetary system works because you're not allowed to run a node. I think uh, the power of running a full node really comes in with the ability to validate, um, to get transparency and to participate in the governance structure via the, the software that you decide to download or to use as your node mm-hmm. software. Um, mm-hmm. not very articulate, not succinct, but I mean, I think it all comes back to freedom of association, participating, and most importantly, recognizing that that partic- participation is key if you want to preserve the qualities that, that Bitcoin, uh, the value prop that Bitcoin gives the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been, um, so I was doing some writing the other day about like, coming back to the to the samurai thought. So, you know, the samurai, the, the, their weapon was obviously the sword, right? And, you know, the, the sort of the theory is that the, the soul of the samurai resides in the sword, you know, they get given the, the wooden kendo stick from the age of five, and basically their whole progression as a as a young boy through to 
teenagehood um, when they're actually given the sword and become a man at the age of 15. Um, you know, they're given the actual the real sword, um, you know, from that age. It's sort of like this, um, you know, the, the analogy I made, like, for, for the Bitcoiner, um, you know, their, their sword is their key, basically, their keys, in a sense. It's like that is that is the the quintessential piece of, you know, your, your Bitcoin um you know, arsenal for lack of a better term, right? And then I was trying to find like an analogy for the for the node. And, you know, I thought of like the horse or something like that because like both in samurai culture and in, you know, in, I mean, the word chivalry relates to horsemanship um, in, in the West. It's like the, the knight with the horse was seen as the protector of the property or the, or the consensus, the, the protector of kind of like, governance in a sense in, in the realm or in the region and like the node is almost like the horse it's like it's a you know sure if you hold your bitcoin keys as an individual that's that's one thing and you know you sort of you have your private property that's like having your sword but like being the the knight um and being the participant in the you know the enforcement of the consensus rules, you know, in the network. And, and I know I'm stretching here with fucking analogies, but like there, there seems to be some sort of, you know, overlap to me. It's like a running a node is basically, I mean, I think this has been said probably by Michael or someone like that, but it's like, it makes you a first class Bitcoin citizen, you know, not mm-hmm. just a, you know, a dependent with some keys. And, and I think that, you know, there's a, there's probably like a, you know, the, the utilitarian argument for running your own node, I think, is quite weak because, like, you know, sure, like, I can run my own node and I can check it myself. But I think there is, like, a, I don't know, like, a more of, like, a noble argument for running a node. It's like, you know, are you a fucking Bitcoin peasant or are you, like, a Bitcoin, you know, first-class first class citizen? citizen. Yeah. yeah. No, no, definitely. I think that going back, maybe... It's not really part of the utilitarian sort of meme behind running a node, but if we're being honest, like you, you do need a certain number of Bitcoin first-class citizens to ensure that the network doesn't become perturbed and co-opted in the future. And so, yeah, maybe it is like uh, the hero's journey of a knight or a samurai, where we need to engender that type of culture with. I don't know exactly what the number is, but certainly at least uh, a at least some number of people to to ensure that the network survives. Yeah, it's it's almost like a duty, right? And this is sort of like you look at all these feudal uh, cultures or the warrior cultures and all that sort of stuff. Is they they had like the um the the primary warrior caste, and it was their duty to defend the land or to defend, defend the territory, that sort of stuff. So in many ways, like, uh, the node runners are the defenders of the Bitcoin territory or the Bitcoin consensus rules. And, you know, there's, I think, this is why, like, I'm kind of leaning towards the, the, the noble call to, you know, be that person, you know, not because, you know, just you can check the transactions, but it's like, you know, you, you are you know, like a, an official Bitcoiner you know, when you have a node. Um, you know, until then you're just like a... A dependent. You know, a dude, dude with a wallet. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. 
I completely agree. Um, unfortunately, I think the storm that has come over the town that you're currently in is affecting the noise. The noise. But, um, yeah, so I think we're going to have to wrap unless the storm stops soon. Just no, because, it ain't going to stop. So what? Uh, where can where can anybody get a, their hands on the Bitcoin Times, the Austrian edition? Yes, is it sold out yet? So it, it is no, it's not sold out yet. Um, it's uh, it, I sell it in like five hundred chunks. So, so to give people some context here, really quickly, there's um, there will be twenty one editions over twenty one years. Each edition is going to have its own theme. So I said Austrian edition last year. This year is going to be the energy edition, and there is a collectible of each one being printed and that's what marty has if you're watching the video in the back there if you're listening um if you jump on bitcointimes.io you can see what the collectible looks like but it's like a gorgeous print of um of the magazine itself in like a thick high quality um, paper paper stock and there's 2100 of each of the collectibles being printed so at the moment, only edition three, four, and five have been printed. Um, I'm getting one and two redesigned, so that way there's like consistency to the theme. So they'll go out probably in March or April or something. Um, and you know, it's only available for sets. Each one is numbered uniquely on the back. So uh, like, for example, edition one, sorry, issue one, 21, 2100, 1031, um, and 1984, I think those ones are going to be um, auctioned off. But yeah, what Marty's sort of pointing to there, each one has a has a unique number. So people, I know like there's a bunch of people that are collecting them, like Mark Moss, for example, he gets issue number 10 of every edition. Um, so 10 of 2100. Um, and, you know, Brandon Quinn, for example, gets number 33 of 2100. So, so each pe- sort of people, you know, collect them in that way. But yeah, they're available on bitcointimes.io. You can get a three-pack for a discount. Um, I also do flat rate shipping, so that saves you some sets. And I'm going to chuck a code for Marty, which is going to be TFTC on checkout. And I can't remember how I set that up. I think that'll save you about 30,000 sats or something like that off the, um, off the rate. So if you want to support the work, support the people who are writing it, um, and start collecting these suckers, you know, it's, only, it's only the creme de la creme of writers. So hope you'll jump on and check it out. I can attest to the quality of the content and the quality of the uh the actual product it's very high quality i have issue or not issue i have i have number 150 out of 2100 of the austrian edition i'm very happy to have it yeah i've got my stack i've got three four and five right here i will pick up one and two once they're released in print later this year and i hope to grow the stack to 21 21 issues tall <laughs> it's gonna look sexy when it's done, man. It's gonna yeah. look beautiful. I just gotta keep coming up with fucking novel ideas. I think each year, so like energy's coming up. I think you know another obvious one will be like the philosophy edition, probably like a theology edition, you know, Christianity and shit like that. I think there's gonna be some good ones. But you know, if anyone's got any ideas and shit, shit like that, like I've got, um, you know, the the Twitter handle is Timeless Bitcoin. So like, reach out, let me know. Um, but you know, I'm planning I'm planning ahead for this one. Yeah, one thing you've done too. I mean, you do have um, sponsors throughout, but you've like matched the the aesthetic of the whole issue mm-hmm. with the sponsors, which I think is unique as well. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, I tried, I tried to. Yeah, I think the, the design thing for me was just super important because that that's like, you know, these days with like the amount of, you know, we sort of said it before, like tongue in cheek, like, you know, everyone's a Bitcoin writer, but like also in just in the modern world in general, like everyone's a fucking author now. And the amount of like hack books that are out there, like that are just like, whipped up you know as you know like there's people doing courses about you know how to write a book in 30 days you know and you like put together like a skeleton thing and like you know blah 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 and it's it's just so like cheap and hacky and it's like just like run-of-the-mill crap that is just regurgitated from somebody else and for me i wanted to just really do something different with this it's like okay let's put some real effort because that's like a two month worth of designing and thinking about like how the imagery and the visuals kind of like tell the story of the theme and the articles and stuff like that so yeah like thank you thank you for picking that up because you know there's, there's a lot of work that went into this that i think it'll take a keen eye to to see well thank you for producing it thank you for the conversation yeah it went in a direction Absolutely. i wasn't expecting but i'm very happy that it did for sure for as sure. always thank you freaks go to bitcointimes.io pick up the latest edition and keep a lookout for one and two and then the energy edition, which should be out later this year. Enjoy, uh, nice. enjoy the rest of your storm. It seems like, uh, this is, sounds like a storm that you go and you sit and you watch it. Pass it really by. is. I'm just going to fucking chill out and relax, bro. I'm done for the day. All right. Enjoy it. Thanks brother. Peace and love freaks.